traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In our last episode review on the Twilight Zone podcast, we said hello to a new Twilight Zone writer who will stay with us right until the end of our Twilight Zone journey. And that writer was Earl Hamner Jr. But tonight we welcome back an old favourite who is almost at the end of his Twilight Zone journey. He's been with us since almost the beginning when his story was adapted by Rod Serling for episode 13 of season 1, with the four of us are dying. And after tonight's episode, he'll only actually be with us for one more show. Now that writer is of course George Clayton Johnson. When we last met George Clayton Johnson, he gifted us with the classic episode, Nothing in the Dark, an antidote to fiction that portrays death as something to be afraid of. Often we can identify a thread through a writer's work, and it doesn't have to be there in every story, but we will see it cropping up regularly as they wrestle with their own preoccupation with it. And for George Clayton Johnson, that thread is time. What do we do with it when we have it? And what do we do when it runs out? As you know, here on the Twilight Zone podcast, we like to scratch the surface a little to see what the message is behind each episode. And part of the joy of that is that I give my thoughts, then you, the friends of the show, will often come back to me with yours. Sometimes they're the same, sometimes different. And that's the beauty of the Twilight Zone and our little corner of it here. But what do we do when an episode wears its message so clearly on its sleeve that we wonder whether there is anything left to find out? Let's play a game of Kick the Can. Sunnyvale Rest, a home for the aged, a dying place and a common children's game called Kick the Can that will shortly become a refuge for a man who knows he will die in this world if he doesn't escape into the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on February 9th, 1962. Written by George Clayton Johnson and directed by Lamont Johnson. So there's not much to say about Rod Serling's opening narration here. You know, I do like it when he's part of the scenery. I'm just not sure walking out of a nearby bush is the best example of that. And the intro is pretty short and to the point here. As I mentioned, this is an episode written by George Clayton Johnson. And what I find quite strange is that... He's been connected to the show from the first season quite early on, and there have been several episodes since. But then after this one, we don't get another George Clayton Johnson episode until season 5 with a story called 90 Years Without Slumbering. And that is based on his story, but adapted by another writer, Richard DeRoy. So why is that? Maybe we'll find out when we get there. So essentially... Kick the Can is the last Twilight Zone that is completely written by George Clayton Johnson. 
which is kind of sad because he is one of the most respected Twilight Zone writers, and this departure seems quite premature. By now we've met the director Lamont Johnson several times and we'll meet him three more times before his Twilight Zone run is through. So I won't go over his bio, but what I will do is read a short piece from a book that I have called Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone by Stuart T. Stanyard. Now I've mentioned this book in the past and it's always a joy to dig into it and I do highly recommend it. The main portion of the book is interviews with Twilight Zone stars and writers and directors and Stuart Stanyard interviews Lamont Johnson and he asks him, what do you think makes a good Twilight Zone? To which Lamont Johnson replies, First of all, a naturalistic setup, starting out with something that seems extremely natural, very normal, and then seeing it turned upside down. This is what I think is so universal and such a great appeal to people. We all have these nightmares, we all have our own twilight zones. We live these seemingly plateau lives a lot of the time, but there are things that are unaccountable, or totally deranged in the normal forms of things, that suddenly come up, so that everybody's nerve ends are all attuned to a more placid or normal thing, and we love when we know it's fiction, to see discomfiture, that twist, that makes your imagination work and gives you prickles. So will this episode do that for us? Well when we arrive at our location here for this episode, it is, as Lamont Johnson says, a very ordinary setting. It's the Sunnydale Rest Home and it's even located on Tranquility Lane. But when we get inside, while it's certainly quiet, it's not the satisfying peace that we would connect with tranquility, but rather the empty silence of boredom. The residents are all sat or stood with no stimulation of any kind. And then we meet our hero, Charles Whitley, played by Innes Truex. Clearly he has an energy that the other residents lack, and he heads out of the door to meet his son, who he believes is going to take him home. I didn't say I'd come and get you, Dad. I said I'd come and we'd talk about it. A nice little touch here is that the actor who appears briefly as Charles' son, David, is Ernest Truex's real son, Barry, in an uncredited appearance. Now Barry had, it seems, a brief acting career, and I believe Ernest's other two sons did as well. But Barry's career spanned more or less a decade, and this was actually his second to last acting role. When Charles disappointedly gets out of his son's car and walks back to the care home, there's a group of kids playing kick the can. Now Charles goes over to the can that they're using to play the game, and he picks it up. And what I really like is that when he picks up the can, this wonderfully whimsical magical music begins to play, as if by doing so he has set something in motion, something has begun. He might not know exactly what it is yet, but the magic of the Twilight Zone is starting to work its way into his life. 
So this game of kick the can is not something I'm familiar with. I do believe that there was a version of it in England, but I'm just not aware of it. So for the uninitiated, the Wikipedia description of the game goes like this. One person or team of people is designated as it, and a can or similar object, paint can or metal pail or bucket is placed in an open space. The middle of a backyard, a green, a cove or cul-de-sac. Okay, we get the picture. The other players run off and hide while it covers his or her eyes and counts to a previously decided number. It then tries to find and tag each of the players. Any player who is tagged is sent to the holding pen, which is simply a designated area for all the captured players to congregate, generally in plain sight of the can. Any player who has not been caught can kick the can or tip the can. If they do this without being caught, then all of the captured players are set free. Alternatively, one of the captured players is set free each time the can is tipped. The first person caught is the first to be set free. The second person caught is the second to be set free, etc. Until the person tipping the can is tagged or all the captured players are freed. If it catches all the players, he or she win that round, and generally a new it is designated for the next round. Now I might not be familiar with this game, but of course we're all privy to at least something similar to that. And what's interesting about it is that it is a game that was created out of perhaps hardship. The ingenuity of children who didn't have much. So when you have nothing, you use what you can find. And there's this wonderful folklorish aspect to a game like this. The fact that the rules are never written down or learned from a book, but just passed from child to child. And inevitably, there would be regional differences, slight variations on the rules depending where you live. And it's one of those things that older generations will grumble about when a child of a younger generation says that they're bored or there's nothing to do because their generation may do with nothing, they may do with a can. And in that same Wikipedia article, it does mention that Kick the Can does seem to be dwindling in the imaginations of children because this style of play seems to be dying out. Listen to him. It's enough to wake the dead. They're playing Kick the Can. Don't you remember? Oh, we used to play it all the time. We're running and shouting. Man, all that noise. Well, you can't stop kids from playing kick the can. It's like statues and, and hide and seek. It's in their, their blood. It's a, it's a special summer ritual. Did you ever stop to think of it? All kids play those games, and the minute they stop, they begin to grow old. It's almost as though playing kick the can keeps them young. I really like this exchange between Ben and Charles, and Charles calls kick the can a summer ritual, and it's as if he's figuring out the code that the world runs on that nobody else really sees. So again we see this folklorish aspect to the game, but now it's beyond just being like a story that is passed down, 
It's almost like a spell or a magical state of being. And what's also great in these scenes where Charles and Ben are talking this out is the constant noise of the kids in the background and it does give it that magical sense in a way like they are beyond just being kids but they're almost like magical beings at the, at the corner of their perception. Now I said earlier that this is an episode that wears its message on its sleeve but also its development doesn't actually give us much to work with either. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, George Clayton Johnson says, I wrote a five-page story about an old man who picks up a tin can and tries to remember the rules of the game. He encourages the other people in the old folks' home to become young in spirit by playing the game. It was an offbeat story that one might find down the road from where they live. Buck read the story, and we would talk about the story, and I went home to rework the material. After a while, he told me that the story was much better and ordered me to write the script. So I went home and wrote the script. So this one is pretty light on trivia as well, so bear with me, folks. Now, Charles, who is played by Ernest Truex, we of course recognise from his previous Twilight Zone outing, What You Need. Now, Truex was a performer from the early days of film, having made his debut in 1913, when he would have been about 24. So he was originally a silent film actor, as well as being a successful stage actor. And if you go to his IMDb page, there's a great picture of him looking every bit, the silent star with a pencil-thin moustache, very pale face makeup, and the overdone eye makeup. So it's nice to see him in a different type of role, which is complete opposite to his previous Twilight Zone role. In the Twilight Zone companion, Mark Zickrey says he thinks Truex is wonderful in this, but he says that he was forgettable in What You Need, which I disagree with. You see, the point of his character in What You Need is that he is quite understated and under the radar. He slips in and out of your life without causing a fuss. He just gives you what you need and then moves on. So I think he was just what was needed for that part. Maybe there are people who stay young. Maybe they know a secret that they keep from the rest of us. Charles. Maybe the fountain of youth isn't a fountain at all. Maybe it's a way of looking at things. A way of thinking. Charles, stop it. You're an old man, don't you understand? Your youth has been gone for 60 years. So here back in the care home, we have a couple of things going on. Charles' friend Ben goes to the superintendent of the home, who is a man called Cox, played by John Marley, who I remember most for the Godfather saga, the TV cut of the first two Godfather movies. But I also remember him playing David Banner's dad on the Incredible Hulk TV show. But to be fair, he had a long and varied career, and we'll see him again in the Twilight Zone in the episode, The Old Man in the Cave. So the other thing that's happening is that Charles is setting about trying to stir up the other residents. Yeah. Oh, say, what's wrong with you people? Can't you show a little life? Are you the same ones that used to skip rope? And hunt for pollywogs? Huh? And run through sprinklers? Huh? I think George Clayton Johnson's writing is quite spot on here with a few things. 
First of all, there's an element of the dehumanisation of the elderly. And I'm not pointing any fingers at anyone here as a culprit in this, but we're probably all guilty of it in our youth to a degree, of thinking of the elderly as something so far removed from ourselves that we don't really allow them any latitude in their thinking or behaviour and just write them off as that crazy old person. And we kind of see the old people get even more childlike in their behaviour as the episode goes on. And Lamont Johnson said in The Twilight Zone Companion, I find old people, if they're turned on, to have a curious kind of wonderful daring and madness and commitment, because they say, why the hell not? What have I got to lose? Middle-aged and younger actors are far more uptight. They really had such fun. It was such a joy to them to be released into a kind of fanciful thing. And I do think we really see that here in these scenes. Before they even go out, there is a, a childlike aspect to the old people. People getting on need the rest. Well, we, we can't run fast or far, but, uh, well, we can move. And there are trees and bushes. Maybe if the hunted are handicapped, so is the hunter. Us? Children's games? Yes, that's a secret. Don't you see? The secret of youth. Listen, can't you hear it? Summer, grass, run, jump, youth. Wake up! Wake up! Oh, this is your last chance. I can't play kick the can alone. And they do start to wake up. The magic begins to work even before they go outside. Except for with one person. Charles! What are you doing? Oh, Ben, come with us. Out on the lawn? Me? Yes, you, Ben. We've always done everything together. Let's not stop now. Come, come with us, Ben. Come play kick the can. Charles, come to your senses. Ben, you're afraid. You're afraid of a new idea. You're afraid to look silly. You're afraid to make a mistake. You decided that you were an old man, and that has made you old. I am old, and so are you, Charles, and that's a fact. Fact. Your bones are old, and they'll break if you try to run with them. Your heart is old, and your lungs are old. You're used up, worn out by a lifetime. Now, Ben is played by Russell Collins, another hard-working actor of the time, and unfortunately... He would only live for another three years after this episode. But such a hard-working actor he was, that he actually racked up another 30 screen credits, with sometimes multiple episodes of a particular show, before his sudden passing of a heart attack, three years later. And I think Ben is key to maybe the secondary theme of this episode for me. We've all heard the saying that misery loves company, and Ben represents that here. And if you look around you, you can probably see this in very small examples in our day-to-day -day life as well, but also very big ones. Now I'll give you an example, and it's a small one and a rare personal kind of digression. But to me personally, health and fitness is something that I've always felt is very important 
I eat clean, I exercise, and it's a choice I make in my life, and it doesn't seem unusual for me in any way. But in the past, perhaps when I've changed jobs or worked with someone new, I've quite naturally sat to eat lunch and usually have something healthy. And you'll often hear a comment, oh, you're one of those health freaks, are you? Or, or something along those lines. And it's only a small thing, and maybe it's just people trying to make conversation or small talk. But I often think there's also an element to it that subconsciously maybe they would feel better if I took out some fried chicken or a burger instead of what I am actually eating because that then makes them feel better about their choices. They choose to eat the way they eat and if I eat the same way then they themselves know that maybe it's not the healthiest choice but because both of us are doing it, it reinforces their behaviours, it reinforces their view the diet might make them miserable, but misery does love company. They might even want to change, but they just don't have the willpower or the courage to do it, to get by in life without those unhealthy crutches. Now this is not about chicken salad versus KFC, but I just wanted to show maybe a small, everyday, mundane example of the kind of behaviour we're seeing from Ben here. Because if you use this as a starting point, and examine how people behave around some of the bigger issues in life, I do believe that people hold on to all kinds of opinions and behaviours. And this is what I see in Ben, and Charles calls him out on it. And I do believe that there is a part of Ben that really wants to go out with him and play kick the can, and that part does come out later, but it's just too late. He's scared. He's so scared that he'll even try to sabotage Charles' plan by telling the superintendent so that Ben can wallow in his own misery, but he'll have company. There is magic in the world. I know there is. When I fell in love with Mary and kissed her for the first time, that was magic. When my boy was born, that was magic. Friendship is a magic thing. Maybe I'm right, Ben. Maybe kick the can is the greatest magic of all. All right, Ben. And I'll do it without you. So just to take another little detour here, when I spoke about this episode wearing its message on its sleeve, it's this one, the one that Charles is trying to get across, that to stay young, one needs to think young, and not just accept that you're old, and what comes with being old. And this manifests in a couple of ways. At one point, when he's talking to the other old people, they're saying, we can't run anymore, we need our rest, and he says, but you can move. And whether he knew it or not, George Clayton Johnson is kind of tapping into the modern way of thinking, in that the old way of thinking was, well, you're older, you just need to sit down, have a rest, and you'll be fine. When in fact, the opposite is true. You need to keep moving. And there's a lot of advances in the functional fitness movement these days that really show that people of greater age really keeping up with their athletic ability. 
So there is that, but the other thing, and probably the main thing that George Clayton Johnson is getting to, is this mental attitude. Can it have this kind of positive effect? Can you keep young by thinking young? Now who listening to this, if you are of a certain age, hasn't thought that time seems to go faster the older you get? It seems to be a universal thing. Those long summers of our youth now seem like a million years ago, because now summers pass in the blink of an eye. The American biologist Robert B. Southern has spent 45 years studying this phenomenon, and every day, five times a day, he records his temperature, his heart rate, and his blood pressure, and he also tries to estimate a passing minute, and he has found that as he gets older, his time estimation has become less accurate, and time does seem to be speeding up in his perception. So why did those long summers of our youth seem so long? Well, that's because of how our brain processes memory. Now, I'll try and explain this as best I can, but from the articles I've read, it seems that if you are doing new things, going places that you've never been, then your brain will remember that differently to if you do something routine. For example, if you spend your weekend sat on the couch watching television, then your brain will remember that as being quite brief. However, if you take a trip to a place you've never been, you speak to new and interesting people, and generally fill your weekend with new experiences, then your brain will remember that as a long time, because there's lots of new things that it's trying to remember, rather than the routine thing of sitting in your living room which it has a very clear memory of anyway, from the times you've done it previously. So when we think of it that way, it completely makes sense, because as a child, we have a sense of wonder about things that adults find mundane. Because for the child, it's still all new and exciting, but for an adult, they've seen it all before. So if you compare the summer of a child who goes out playing, goes on adventures with their friends, compared to that of an adult, which let's face it, unfortunately usually means just working at your job, and you can see why time seems to speed up as we get older. Unfortunately as adults, we do become creatures of routine, and we have less wonder about the world, because we've experienced more of it, but also we're kind of stuck in our own routines now. So the way to counter that is to try to be as a child is fill our time with new and exciting experiences, but also to slow down and take pleasure in the things around us, like a child does. So George Clayton Johnson has kind of tapped into something quite real here, that the secret to long life, at least where our memories are concerned, is to be as children are, and to do as children do. So in our episode here, the old folks follow Charles outside and they play kick the can, and then they turn into children. And you can look at this two ways, you know, did it really happen that way? Did they really turn into children? Or is this just the beginning of them approaching life in a different way? Are we meant to see them turning into children in a more metaphorical way? Because in the real world sense, you've now got a load of homeless kids running around. So we'll speak more about the actual ending in a moment, 
But first we need to detour yet again to a version of Kick the Can that maybe tries to have its cake and eat it in terms of what happens to the children. And that version, of course, is the one from Twilight Zone the movie. Sir, I don't wish to appear ungrateful, but why didn't you come too? I found out long, long time ago I wanted to be my own true age and try and keep a young mind. Your wishes come true. Your children again. You got your whole life before you. My life was hard. I had a swell life. I could do 60 years standing on my head. I'm cold. Where are we going to spend the night? Who's going to take care of us? No problem for us. We'll just knock on our son's door and say, let us in, Mari. We're your parents. Now, wait a minute. Let's think this over. I mean, we're talking about being young again. We're talking about sex. But Jack Dempsey isn't here. I'll never meet him. My ring, my wedding ring, it fell off. <gasps> Oh, please, I didn't ask to be young again. All I want to do is dance. I can be old and dance. I'm not going to school again. So in this version, Scatman Carruthers plays Mr. Bloom, not so much an old man who has a realisation that thinking young keeps you young, but a man who already has that knowledge and seemingly goes from old people's home to all people's home, teaching that to others. And when it gets to the point where the grown-ups turn into kids, maybe the writer, who I believe was Richard Matheson, has that point in mind. What happens to the kids then? So he creates that scene that we've just heard, where they all decide to stay as old people, but just try to have a young mindset. Now everyone has their own thoughts on Twilight Zone the movie, including... George Clayton Johnson. And there's quite a lengthy passage in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic about George Clayton Johnson's response to the movie. And he says, Each little piece of my career, no matter how tiny it is, in some sort of way tends towards the major because of its association, or the place that it appears, or the notoriety it gets. For example, the remake of Kick the Can for Twilight Zone the movie has got Steven Spielberg directing it. Now that's significant right there. It's one thing to get a remake, but it's another to have the Steven Spielberg as the guy who's chosen to direct your work, with me sort of hanging back and saying, I'm not so sure. I'd love to have a meeting with Steven. And Steven through his representative saying, no, I do not audition anymore. A take it or leave it sort of attitude. Ultimately, I ended up taking the deal watching the way they put it all together and feeling somewhat dismayed when I actually saw it. Although I was quite touched a bit by the lady whose husband was Jack Dempsey and she lost her ring. Right at the end, this ring has become too big and fallen off here. That was all very moving to me. But basically, I sat there sort of depressed by what they had done with it. I was blessed though. I ended up making large amounts of money from it. I was fortunate enough to think of an ending for Kick the Can that would make sense, 
so I typed it up on three pages and took it with me to my little meetings with the producers. Before I signed the deal, I gave them these three pages, so later on when I saw that they had used some of the information from the three pages, I called it to the attention of the business affairs department and they ended up giving me yet more money. So all in all, I came away from the experience really satisfied, except for my real disappointment that Spielberg didn't have a clear idea of stories. So George Clayton Johnson was not too keen on it, and like I said, opinions do differ on Twilight Zone the movie, and the criticism that's mostly levelled at this segment is that it's overly sentimental and schmaltzy. There is that, but I also think this ending maybe loses something for me too. While I can see some value in the characters realising that to become physically young again would carry its own issues, and accepting that age is there for a reason, but they're just going to approach it differently, it does lose maybe a little bit of the poetry and the magic for me. In the original, Charles has a realisation, and it seems to tap into the secret of the universe that is really there for all of us to see, if only we realise it. But in the movie, the magical Mr Bloom goes around delivering that message to people. And while the kids returning to their own age makes sense in the real world, I do much prefer the original ending. 20, 25, 30, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, 85, 90. Where are the old people? What are these kids doing here anyway? I told them they couldn't play here this afternoon. Now go on, kids, I told you you couldn't play here. You'll wake everybody up. Ready or not, here I come. Maybe Whitby took them around to the back. Charles! Charlie, is that you? Is that you, Charlie? Charlie, it's me, Benny. Charlie, take me with you. Take me with you. Charlie, wait for me. Wait. Let's put into the forest is rotten apple. No, Charlie. No. Wait for me. Charlie, it's me. Charlie, it's me. The beauty of this ending is not just in that George Clayton Johnson delivers towards the whole point of the story, but it's also its execution. It begins with Charles counting as an adult, but by the time Sam and Cox go outside, all we see are fleeting glimpses of children running into the bushes, and we still get that sound of them all around us, it's almost eerie in a way, they're like forest spirits as much as they are children. And then when we see Charles again, when he's become a young boy, he seems to have no knowledge of the adult that he used to be. He looks at Sam and he doesn't really understand what he's talking about. He's back to being a carefree child, who is unburdened from the weight of adulthood. And all that matters is when the next game is happening. Whereas Sam now has to walk back to the home, still burdened with age and fear. But perhaps now there's some hope that he too will embrace a new way of thinking. After all, he still has the can. 
At the beginning of the episode, I spoke about a common theme in a lot of George Clayton Johnson's work being time. In Nothing in the Dark, it's how you approach being out of time. In a game of pool, it's about what your life is like when all of your time is devoted to one thing. In Logan's Run, the characters try to hold on to the time that society says they shouldn't have anymore. And now in Kick the Can, it's about making the most of your time in your Twilight Zone years. You know, a few years ago now, I interviewed Jason and Sonny Brock about their documentary about Charles Beaumont. And George Clayton Johnson features quite heavily in that documentary. And one of the things, and I think I may have said it in the interview, is that although he looked very aged, I think he was maybe around 80 at that point, And, you know, he was very slim had this long white beard so he was every bit the older gentleman there was still a spark in him he he did seem to me like a younger man in an old man's body so i would like to think that he did carry this with him through his life and as i've said all the way through this episode does wear its message on its sleeve think young be young but I also asked the question, is there anything more to it than that? Is there any hidden depths? And if there are, then I'm sure you, my audience, will let me know. You never let me down in that regard. But for me, I suppose it's not so much a hidden depth, because it's pretty much there in those conversations between Charles and Sam. It's this aspect of people living their lives in the confines of what they fall into, rather than exploring what they truly want for themselves, adhering to the overriding perception of what is normal, what everyone else says is normal, because to step outside of that, you'll always have someone like Sam or Cox telling you that you should toe the line, that you shouldn't think differently. And there's a couple of reasons for that. For Sam, it's out of fear. For Cox, it's because it's easier for him if everyone acts the same way and does what his little society says they should. So that's kind of my secondary take from Kick the Can, an episode that just about dodges being overly schmaltzy and sentimental and earns its place as a well-loved Twilight Zone. Think young to stay young, but also when you try and step out of the norm and live your life with genuine good intent the way you want to live it, there's always going to be someone there to tell you that you shouldn't be doing it. But as we've seen tonight, their disapproval is more often than not based upon their own fears and insecurities, or their own need for control, and it's not about you at all. So I guess you don't have to be old to learn some lessons from Kick the Can. Sunnyvale Rest, a dying place for ancient people who have forgotten the fragile magic of youth. A dying place for those who have forgotten that childhood, maturity, and old age are curiously intertwined and not separate. A dying place for those who have grown too stiff in their thinking to visit the Twilight Zone. Okay, so that is Kick the Can. Another little interesting note that I never really included in there is that the Twilight Zone radio version of that cast Shelley Behrman in the role of Charles, which... I always enjoy, you know, seeing Twilight Zone people take on a different role like that. So that's quite a good listen, and I do recommend that one. But let's get to some listener emails in Submitted for your approval. 
Longtime friend of the show, Mark Slade, has written to me and he says, Hi Tom, just listen to The Hunt, another really good analysis of The Twilight Zone. I've always loved this episode and I'll tell you, I know these people. I've heard stories, true and not so true, of these people from this region. I have lived in Virginia, USA all my life and Hamner has always treated characters from his home state with much love and respect. He was truly a great writer and although I don't really care for the Waltons save for the Homecoming film and Spencer's Mountain novel, I think he was a great addition to the Twilight Zone as a writer. Hats off to Sailing who always had different points of view and welcomed different walks of life. I think both leading actors were the best possible cast considering their CVs. Again, you always deliver a solid episode, and that's from Mark. Well, thank you, Mark. And I think Mark's commenting there on the kind of authenticity that those actors had, I think, in those roles, and that's great. I agree. Thank you. Okay, friend of the show, Fief, has written in, and he says, Hey, love the podcast. Especially love The Hunt and the segment from the Kate Smith Show version with John Carradine and James Dean. I'd never have imagined that connection. I also wondered if you thought, as I did, that the trouble with Templeton might be an early draft of night galleries they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. I know Sailing didn't write the Zone episode, but I feel he had a hand in rewriting it, and the motif of a bar as a memory from the past that keeps calling the protagonist back is present in both, though better developed in Riley's bar, which is the superior episode, I think. It might be part of Sailing's middle-aged man Opsas, Patterns, Walking Distance, a stop at Willoughby, and they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. Very moving, all of them. A question, in one of your recent podcasts, you mentioned that a friend is doing an Alfred Hitchcock Presents podcast. What is that called, and how can I find it? And that's from Fief. Thank you, Fief. You know, you could be right on that. I think if we've learned any lesson on this journey, it's that Rod Sailing would would recycle things and I guess maybe he took a touch out of Templeton uh, for the tearing down Tim Riley's bar and what a great show Tim Riley's bar is you know you're right it, it it is a progression of that story you know walking distance stop at Willoughby now patterns I'm ashamed to say I've not actually seen it I need to actually I've got the book um but I need to sit down and watch it so I need to remedy that but I do think that tearing down Tim Riley's bar is another great example of sailing, examining that kind of examining that kind of period coming up to middle age, you know, and examining where you are. So that's a great pull. Thank you, Fief. Now, your question about the Alfred Hitchcock Presents podcast. Now that is called Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and it's by a friend of the show, a friend of mine called Al one of the friends I've made on this journey and when I replied to you Fief I said it wasn't available on iTunes yet and podcatchers but they've resolved that issue now and it is out there and it's called Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Now if you can get past Al's atrocious Alfred Hitchcock impression at the beginning of his first episode then you're golden after that because it becomes very good after that. Um, but yeah, he puts together a really well-researched and informative show. He's just terrible at Alfred Hitchcock impersonation. So thank you for writing in, Fief. So only a short mailbag this month, but I just want to give a special mention to another long-time friend of the show by the name of Michael. Now, I mentioned in the previous show about a very generous listener who 
made a very significant contribution towards my Binghamton trip next year. And, um, you know, it, it was really quite touching for someone to do that, you know, just off the cuff, and I really appreciated it. Now, Michael, Michael Lynn, his name is, who is a teacher, I believe, and often uses the Twilight Zone in his lessons, he actually did that as well, and he gave a significant contribution. I, you know, I won't embarrass him by saying how much, but it was a three-figure contribution. Now, you know, I don't, as Rod Serling said, I don't know how deserving I am, but I know how grateful. And the fact that people have done this, you know, I really can't thank you enough. So Michael, so Michael, you, you have my thanks and my appreciation. And if you make it to Binghamton next year, then I hope that I get to thank you personally. Okay, another couple of people to thank over on iTunes is a lovely new review from Shell and Ange. And uh, it's it's really sweet, you know. I like it when people tell me a bit about their connection to the Twilight Zone and she does that there. So thank you. I really appreciate that. And also to new Patreon supporters. Now over on Patreon, whenever someone pledges to the show, I kind of make them executive producer of an episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. It's kind of like when you go to the zoo and adopt a monkey. But, um, you know, it's just my way of saying you're keeping this episode on the air from your contribution so thank you so this month i've got two new executive producers we've got marion mullins jr who is executive producer of showdown with rance mcgrew sorry about that marion just send me an email if you want me to change that i'll do it don't worry and we've also got jay howard who is executive producer of a world of difference so thank you guys for your support and keeping the show on the air now, normally now, I would hand over to Rod Sailing to tell us what's coming up next, but the next episode is going to be something a little bit different. A long-time friend of the show, who I don't actually think has been on the show, but he's a, he's a patron as well. I've been on his show, which is a Star Trek podcast called Standard Orbit. He contacted me, and we got into a little conversation about the Dynamite Comics Twilight Zone books. Now I covered the Straczynski run, which was like three, which is like three separate co collections the way I bought them a while ago. And we'll go over them briefly, but there also came out several more books after that, which I haven't really touched upon. And they're all sitting here on my shelf, but I've not really spoke about them. So Zach came up with the idea of maybe going through those. So we're going to do it. It's going to be like a more of a chat type episode where we talk through them, but Zach's going to join me for that and I'm quite looking forward to it because it gives me an excuse to go through those books and read them but also to connect with Zach who's a, who's a great podcaster and I always enjoy my interactions with him. So that's what's going to be next time, the Dynamite Comics Twilight Zone books and I will speak to you then. Free Europe needs your help to fight communism. Give now to Radio Free Europe.